grab your Bible, and I'm going to ask you to turn with me somewhere that I've never asked you to turn with me before in your Bible. And for some of you, maybe you don't even know what this page looks like in your Bible. Turn to your table of contents. Turn to the table of contents in the front of your Bible uh, and just have that before you and take a gander. Once you get there, check out your neighbor's table of contents. See if they match. <laughs> Look over and see. All right, you got matching tables of contents there uh, in the pews? I hope so. We're going to be talking about that today. Hmm. How do you know, as you look at your table of contents this morning, how do you know whether this is the infallible list of infallible books? That's a tricky question, isn't it? How do you know that this is the list? Essentially, that question is asking, do we have the right canon of Scripture? And for the first half of the sermon today, we're going to be talking about canon. And I'll give you a definition for that in due time. But for now, just consider the table of contents and think of that as canon. Is our relationship to the canon of Scripture, the table of contents, like a flow of traffic thing? You know what it's like when you're driving somewhere and you don't have any idea what the speed limit is, but hey, that guy is going that speed and they're all going that speed, I'll just kind of join them. Is that what the table of contents is in our Bible? We don't know what the, what the speed limit is, we don't know what the boundaries are, but we're just joining the flow. <laughs> Is it kind of like, have you ever thought about this? We drive in a parkway and we park in a driveway. Who came up with those words? We just all agreed to it. Okay, it makes no sense, but okay. Is the table of contents in our Bible kind of like that? Someone at some point just said, that's it, and we're all just doing it. It's an interesting question, isn't it? I hope you think it's interesting. Otherwise, this will be a very boring sermon for you. Uh, But this morning, we want to consider how we can have confidence not just in the individual passages of Scripture themselves, but as we look at our table of contents, confidence knowing that this is what God has for us, no more and no less. Well, we just passed by uh, an anniversary last month in, in April, the 476th anniversary of the Council of Trent. 476 years since a group of Roman Catholics got together, and they met over the course of 18 years. I'm sure you've been in some long meetings in your life, but 18 years, that's a long time to keep meeting. Well, one of the results of the Council of Trent was the Roman Catholic Church's table of contents. Here is the authoritative, perfect list of books. Council of Trent came up with the Canon of Trent, their list of books. Now, the Council of Trent met in, uh, I believe, 1546. What's 2022 divided by 476? I think it was 1546. Um, they, They met kind of as a response to what was happening in Europe, the Reformation. The Reformation led by Martin Luther, of course, John Calvin, others who followed. And Martin Luther was used of God in a huge way, as I'm sure you know, He's a big reason why the way God used him is a big reason why we're here today in a church like this. Well, Luther had his own canon of Scripture. In fact, Martin Luther took seven books of the New Testament and put them at the end of the New Testament. He didn't have the same order of the table of contents that we have today. And so here you have these powers at work and 
they're talking about the table of contents of our Bible. It's a big part of the discussion. Well, that begs the question, who did God task with making this list of books? Who did God commission to come up with the right table of contents? And why should we trust that person or that group of people? Well, before we get into that even more, I want to recap what was spoken of last week. I want to talk about, again, real briefly, our presuppositions. We come from the starting point as Christians, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ. We start with God. God is, and God has spoken. That's our starting point. God is, and He has spoken. We trust Him and not ourselves. He is our ultimate commitment in life, not our independent judgments, as if there was such a thing as judgments independent of God anyway. God is the one who gives us the ability to judge and reason. He gives us the ability to employ laws of logic and make decisions in life. He's the one who gives sense to our senses, and He's the reason for our reasoning. The God who made us, our Creator. And Christians, as a presupposition, we submit to the revelation which God inspired. That's our starting point. We start with God and His revelation. In Luke chapter 10, Luke 10 verse 16, Jesus said this to His apostles, The one who listens to you listens to Me. And the one who rejects you rejects Me. He who rejects Me rejects the one who sent Me. That's a pretty dire warning, isn't it? He who rejects the apostles, Jesus says, is actually rejecting Jesus Himself. The one who's rejecting God's system that He has set up of getting Scripture, getting revelation to His church, actually is rejecting God Himself. So as we begin the discussion today, a, a proper definition is required. If you have your notes, you've got a couple blanks there to fill in. For a proper definition of canon. A proper definition of canon. Canon is for at least our purposes. I think this is a pretty good definition for most purposes, but at least our purposes today. Canon is the scope of God's written preserved revelation. Canon is the scope of God's written preserved revelation. John Calvin said a lot about canon, and I'm going to share with you a lot of quotes from a lot of different people today, but here's one from the get-go from John Calvin. He said in defining what canon is, John Calvin said this, those books which the Lord judged to be necessary for His church have been selected by His providence for everlasting remembrance. What is the canon of Scripture? Well, it's those books which the Lord judged to be necessary for His church, and they've been selected by His providence for everlasting remembrance. That's a pretty good quote. So to speak in basic terms, God communicates. That's a good thing, right? God speaks, and He speaks to us. But not all communication is from God. There's a lot of communication in the world. There are a lot of books. There's a lot of stuff out there that's been preserved, and not all of it is from God. God communicates, but not all communication is from God. And here's the problem. God knows perfectly what He has communicated, and we don't. God has perfect knowledge, perfect omniscience about what He has communicated, and we don't have perfect omniscience. But He also hasn't left us hanging. And that's what this whole discussion is about, is how do we marry those two ideas? Canon, therefore, is a byproduct of God's communication. 
The very fact that God has spoken, when, when God spoke one word, canon was created because God only speaks canon. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe we should talk about that passage, Stan. I don't know. <clears throat> Good deal. All right, we found it. We found the off button. <laughs> canon is a byproduct of God's communication. So if you say uh, perhaps Job is the first book that was written in the Bible, Job was the first one. As soon as Job was written, canon was created. Job being the only book that perhaps was in existence at that time, that was the scope of the canon. That was the scope of God's written, preserved revelation. So canon, of course, is just a natural and necessary boundary. Do we have to have a a list? Do we have to have a boundary? Well, yes, because God hasn't inspired all communication. The very fact that God has only inspired some communication means that there's a boundary. Okay, now Old Testament canon is a different conversation than New Testament canon. If you still have your table of contents in front of you, you see you've got Old Testament and New Testament separated there, don't you? And in history, there were 400 years that separated those two testaments, 400 years of silence. And so as we consider the Old Testament and what is canon for the Old Testament, that is a bit of a different conversation than the New Testament. Were the Jews uncertain about what was in their Hebrew Bible or what should have been in their Hebrew Bible? Well, to answer that question, it's very important to recognize, first of all, that there were no disagreements between Jesus and the Jews about what was Scripture. Not one time, as you read the Gospels, as you read the teachings of Jesus, and He says, according to the Scriptures or according to the prophets or anything like that, no one ever says, well, which Scriptures or which prophets? Never comes up. It doesn't come up. And that's a very big point that you want to hold on to as you consider this discussion. But also consider Romans 3. We looked at this last week. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And what God says the role of Israel was includes preserving this revelation. Now, there are a lot of aspects to the role that Israel served. But in Romans 3, verses 1 and 2, listen to what God says. What advantage has the Jew... Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, Paul writes. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. They knew what the oracles of God were. God didn't entrust them with something that they were totally ignorant of. God didn't entrust them with something, because that word entrust is a strong word. They were responsible for what God had given them, and they had knowledge of that. They understood what God had given them. I'm going to walk you through a series of verses here. You don't have to turn with me, but in Matthew 5.17 and through other parts of the Gospels and the book of Acts, we see Jesus referring to the Hebrew Scriptures and never clarifying the list. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, "'Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill.'" No one said, "'Wait!' Which law? You think any Jews were saying which law? No, they knew. The law of Moses, of course, and the prophets. No one ever questioned Jesus and said, which prophets? It never happened. In Luke chapter 16, verse 29, it is uh, the instance of Abraham's bosom. You have Lazarus and the rich man who have passed away. Abraham is speaking to the rich man. The rich man wanted to go back and warn his brothers about death and what's on the other side. Abraham said, instead of you going back and telling them, 
They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. There was no question about which prophets or who's Moses. It was very well known. In Luke 24, we're going to look at this passage in more detail later. Luke 24, verse 27 Jesus leading a Bible study. Isn't this a fascinating scene? Jesus leading a Bible study. It says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. There wasn't a dispute about what was scripture. He started with Moses and all the prophets. They knew scripture. And then later on in Luke 24, this is verse 44, he adds another category. He's speaking to his disciples now, and he says, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This three-section breakdown of the Hebrew Scriptures was pretty common, and they had a pretty good understanding of what was in the Bible, didn't they? Acts chapter 3, now we're transitioning to uh, the time of the apostles. Acts chapter 3, this is Peter speaking. He says, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. No one there in Jerusalem, none of the Jews that were hearing Peter said, but you have a different list of prophets than I do. It never once came up. It didn't come up. They had an understanding and they had great unity with actually very minor discussion. There was very little discussion that we can see in Israel's history where they disputed any of the books. I'll give you just a couple that they were not sure about for some time, but still regarded as canonical. This is from Roger Beckwith, a quote from scholar Roger Beckwith. He says, with the exception of the three short books of Ruth, Song of Songs, and Esther, the canonicity of every book of the Hebrew Bible is attested. And by attested there, he means recognized. They didn't make it Scripture. It already was Scripture. They were recognizing Scripture. Most of these books, he says, several times over. It is very striking that over a period ranging from the 2nd century B.C. at latest to the 1st century A.D., so many writers of so many classes show such agreement about the Old Testament canon. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? So many different people over such a long time in different geographical locations agreeing on this. Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, they recognized God's revelation. Now, New Testament canon, as I mentioned, is, is a different thing. There are concepts and theories regarding the New Testament canon that I want to bring up and I want to quelch. Is that the right word? Squelch, quelch, quell, squelch? I don't know what I'm trying to say. I want to hinder a couple of bad theories. It is interesting when you consider the Old Testament canon it finished with 400 years of silence and then Jesus came. You have the last prophet speaking and then there's this long, centuries-long, silent period and then the Son of God emerges on the scene. John the Baptist cries out in the wilderness and Jesus arrives. With the New Testament, Jesus has come, He's died, He's risen, He's ascended into heaven and He begins building His church and there's really no cutoff point like there was with the Old Testament. And we certainly don't believe that new books of Scripture are being written all the way till the Lord's coming, right? And so we have to try to figure out where the boundaries are here, and there are different theories that have been put forth. One theory, this one I'm sure you're familiar with, says the Apostle John knew the exact boundaries of the canon. And when he was writing Revelation, he knew that he was writing the final book of the New Testament. 
And you're familiar, I'm sure, with this warning. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. The Apostle John wrote, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. In verse 19, And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. So there are some people who will go to that passage and say, see, God says don't add to or take away from the Bible or from the New Testament. But required in that argument is that John would have known all 27 books of the New Testament and that this was the last one that was written. If we were to somehow figure out and pinpoint exact dates of when certain letters were written, if 3 John was written after Revelation, then we would have a problem, right? Because as John wrote 3 John, wasn't he adding to the New Testament? Well, of course he was. And so I do think there's a point, there's a nugget of a point there where, yeah, you don't add to or take away from God's revelation in any case, especially the book of Revelation, which I believe John was talking about. But to expand that out and say God gave John certain perfect knowledge about all 27 books of the New Testament canon and knew that he was writing the last one, I don't see that in that text. There's a second theory. This one has been popularized by the History Channel, Discovery Channel, Da Vinci Code type movies, uh, all those things. It says that essentially it was a free-for-all in the early Christian church. There was a lot of diversity, a lot of competing ideas, a lot of competing letters, a lot of competing people wanting power, all the way up until the 4th century. So we're talking 300 plus years after Jesus died. And then a bunch of people got together and said, we need a list. We need a list. Let's put this matter to bed. Too many people are fighting with each other. We need to settle this. And so God gathered some leaders together. And if you believe that God inspired them, well, he gave them an inspired table of contents. The more uh, worldly view, the carnal view, is that they were the ones with all the power and God wasn't involved at all. They just got together and said, this is it. And everybody had to obey. Well, this concept, if you're coming at it from the spiritual perspective, that God inspired perhaps like some sort of special revelation of golden table of contents dropping down, (laughs) and they were told, these are the ones, well, that creates some new problems. I don't think much of that theory at all, actually. And in fact, it doesn't match with history. And we'll get into that here in a little bit. So the third concept or theory, and the one that I will advocate here today, is that God brought about recognition of his revelation in the church organically over time. God sovereignly working in and through his people, he brought about recognition of his canon organically over time in the church. Now, this has two major implications. One is that no one was given revelation regarding the boundaries of of Scripture at any time. No one was given a special revelation about the boundaries of Scripture at any time. Because you know what happens when you start going down that road? Someone says, well, God told me that this is the right table of contents. Well, how do we verify that? How do you verify when someone says, well, I was given special revelation? Well, then you need another revelation to say that was revelation. And then you need another revelation to verify that one was revelation. And it's just an infinite regress, isn't it? And the second implication of this, besides no one was given revelation regarding the boundaries of Scripture, the second one is that time was necessary. 
Time was necessary both to complete the canon from the apostles' perspective and to recognize the canon from the church's perspective. The apostles lived interesting lives. (laughs) They were all over the place, it seems. You read the life of Paul, and he was bouncing around from one place to another. And so many of of the letters that were inspired were apostles writing to specific churches for their specific context. And so the apostles would live, move around, they would suffer persecution, they would be doing all sorts of different activities, and they would write letters throughout the process. And one letter would be sent to one church. And then the process of copying began. If you were to look at the start of the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes this one letter to the churches, plural, of Galatia. He writes one letter to multiple churches. Well, what does that mean? If there's a church in Derby or Lystra or somewhere that gets the letter first and they want to pass it on, of course, to the next church, well, they have to make a copy. And making copies takes time. It takes a lot of time. So the apostles had to live, travel, write. Those writings had to be copied. And then those copies had to circulate outside of their particular regions. And all of that took time. And so anybody who's coming into this conversation that says, Well, I assume God just gave this really clean-cut, quick answer to this problem. There is no clean-cut, quick answer to this problem. (laughs) But instead, we see God working in His people, through His people, over the course of time to bring about recognition of His Scripture. And those Scriptures had to get around. They had to get around to the church. And as those Scriptures were getting around, there were appropriate tests of canonicity that came up in the church. A church would receive a letter, and then it would be up to the church to figure out, is this truly from an apostle? In fact, in Paul's day, even before the New Testament was finished, Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, don't believe any false letters. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, there are people writing in my name, and it's not me. And so the church then has on them the responsibility of discerning what is apostolic and what is not, separating the false from the true. Recognizing the word that way was, of course, laborious. It was difficult. It required all kinds of verification steps. But they wanted to know what came from an apostle. And we touched on this last week because God gave the apostles authority to reveal. God inspired his apostles. The apostles were always involved in the giving of revelation. And so if there was a letter that came that had no apostolic origin, not canon, not canon. In fact, later on in as the course of church history, there were two main books. There were several uh, letters, false letters that were out there. But there were two main books that people wanted to add to the New Testament canon. One is called The Shepherd of Hermas, and the other one is called The Epistle of Barnabas. And I, I was actually just listening to someone this morning on a totally different topic. He mentioned The Shepherd of Hermas, and he said that someone he knew described it as Jim Morrison strung out on drugs, trying to recreate the book of Revelation. So uh, if you've never read The Shepherd of Hermas, that's kind of what it's like. It is very trippy. It's about an angel who gives all kinds of visions. The letter's broken up into different visions. And it was a shepherd who had seen these visions living in the area of Hermas. That's why it's called The Shepherd of Hermas. And it was, in fact, written in the probably the 4th century, um, or not, not the 4th century, rather the 2nd century, well after the apostles had died. Because we have this fragment that I'll talk about in a little bit where they said they rejected the shepherd of Hermas because it was written very recently. So it had to be, the letters had to be tied directly to the apostles. And once the apostles had ceased, had passed away, 
and of course they weren't replaced, they served that unique time in history, then the canon was closed. It had to be of apostolic origin. Secondly, another test is that these letters that were making circulation through the churches had to bear divine qualities. They had to bear divine qualities. Remember last week when we were talking about Revelation, it was very important that you, that you grasp this, so I hope you're, it's still with you today. When God spoke, He spoke precisely. When God revealed through His apostles, He revealed with great precision. This is what's called inspiration. The product of the apostles' pen when God was revealing through them was a perfect product. The result was an inerrant text, an infallible text. It was incapable of erring. It was perfect in every way. You have to hold on to that. There are lots of churches out there that have given up on this idea of inspiration and a Bible that's inerrant. But when God inspired his apostles and prophets, the result was an inerrant revelation. And so as the churches received these letters, they tested the letters for perfection. A letter had to be free from errors. If a letter contradicted itself, that's not perfect, is it? If a letter has contradicted previous scripture, well, that doesn't work either, does it? So a letter had to be free from errors, free from contradictions, and it had to reflect the harmony, the beauty, the power of God. The Bible says of itself that it is powerful, living and powerful. And so any letter that was to be recognized as canon had to reflect such qualities. And ultimately, God made his word recognizable to his people through these qualities as they recognized the divine qualities. This is a a great quote from uh, John Murray. John Murray said, If the heavens declare the glory of God and therefore bear witness to their divine creator, the scripture as God's handiwork must also bear the imprints of his authorship. If the heavens declare the glory of God, how much more does Scripture, inspired Scripture, that was being copied and sent around, how much more would that reflect the beauty, the glory, the power of God? Also, part and parcel to this teaching, a critical aspect of this understanding is that the letters had to be preserved. If you notice, if you look up the definition I gave you for canon in your notes, notice that it doesn't just say, God's revelation. It doesn't just say God's written revelation. It says God's written and preserved revelation. It's the scope of God's written and preserved revelation. Because for something to be canonical means that the church had to be exposed to it. When God inspired certain texts, did he do so with purpose? Yes. (laughs) The correct answer is yes. When God inspired certain letters, he had purpose. And what was the purpose of God inspiring writings through the apostles? To instruct his church. He was giving his church instruction. He was giving his church teaching. And so there couldn't be some letter that we would discover today that would be added to the canon. Because God's purpose was not prevalent in the life of that letter. You would have to say God's purpose failed. And we don't believe God's purposes fail. No purpose of his can be thwarted. And sometimes you'll hear that. A person will ask you, well, what if we dug up some lost letters of Paul? 
As we just went through 1 Corinthians, we talked about he wrote four letters to the Corinthians that are mentioned in Scripture, and we only have two. What if we find one of those? It would be very interesting to look at. I mean, I'd be first in line to read it for sure. But do we add it as the 28th book of the New Testament? No, we do not. Because God didn't preserve that letter. There are many letters that probably all the apostles wrote, not preserved for us. And so canon is the scope of God's written, preserved revelation. And as those writings were preserved, the church then employed these tests. Was it of apostolic origin? Did it have divine qualities? Think about the life of the doctrine of Scripture. God called His people Israel. He formed the nation Israel. He gave His nation the oracles of God. He entrusted them with His writings, with His oracles, with His revelation all leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ, the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ, which is documented in the four Gospels. Jesus calls apostles and he sends his apostles out and his apostles have the authority to write revelation from God. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're used of God to add to that revelation. And then as they go out to the churches and the apostles die off, the church tests for apostolic origins, for perfection, those divine qualities. And that includes, of course, preservation by nature. But now there's something else going on here. At the end of the day, our tests don't settle anything, do they? We could create all sorts of tests for Scripture and say, well, Scripture must meet this test, and that's how we know that it's Scripture. But if we're the ones who created the test, that's kind of rigging the system, isn't it? That's that's rigging the system a little bit. We must uphold the authority of Scripture, not the authority of our own judgments. Well, how do you do that on a topic like this? That's the mind pretzel I've been enduring for the last two weeks. How do you uphold the authority of Scripture when it comes to the canon? Well, there's something else at play. I want to read to you from Ned Stonehouse, a quote from Ned Stonehouse. He said, Although it is highly important that this historical process, their process of testing the Scriptures, be studied and analyzed as a part of our effort to comprehend the implications of the church's doctrine of Scripture, We also insist that the comprehension of the whole development depends on a recognition of, he gives two things, divine control of history and the special guidance of the Spirit of God. There's a divine control of history. There's not one molecule outside of God's purview. There's not one rogue molecule in the universe, is there? All of history is under divine control. And we know, as the second part of the quote said, that the Holy Spirit is at work. Not just in the Scriptures, but He's at work in the reader of the Scripture to recognize that Scripture is Scripture. So let's talk about illumination for the last half of the message. That is our recognition of what God has said through His written and preserved revelation. And I want to start here, just in case the point isn't clear. Scripture is Scripture, regardless of whether any certain individual recognizes it as Scripture. Okay? Let's just make sure we're all in our place today. Scripture is Scripture, regardless of if anyone recognizes it as Scripture. It bears truth. It bears authority apart from our experience with it. It is divine. It is powerful. It is God's book, regardless of if we call it God's book. It is what it claims to be. 
It retains divine qualities in itself. It bears evidence. It reflects the glory of God in and of itself apart from our recognition of that fact. And this is very important because there was a movement in the middle of the 20th century, really got popular, called Neo-Orthodoxy. And in the Neo-Orthodox position of Scripture, it says that Scripture is just like any other book. Scripture is just a book. It's just words printed on paper. But when you read it, it becomes the Word of God. When you have your experience with Scripture, it becomes Scripture. That's not true. (laughs) Scripture is Scripture apart from your experience with Scripture. It is because God created it. And this has powerful implications. This means when it comes to canon, man did not create canon. No council, no person at any point of time created canon. God creates canon. God, every time he would speak, and the result was this written, preserved revelation for his people, he was adding to his canon. But he was creating it. God did all the work in creating canon. Man doesn't create canon. Man doesn't give Scripture authority. We don't give Scripture any authority. Scripture has authority apart from whatever you think you give it. It's a divine book with divine authority. And that means that when we talk about Scripture, we are, in fact, talking about canon. When we're talking about canon, we're talking about Scripture. These aren't separate ideas, one being God-made, the other being man-made. That's not it. They are the same. Well, how do we come to recognize what is Scripture? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's inevitably where we need to be this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For us to recognize Scripture, we need to be changed. We must be changed. There's something that has to be changed in us. There has to be something that God brings about in us for us to appropriately, accurately recognize Scripture. And I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 11 to 14. It says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a man does, but a natural man, rather, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So what is this teaching us? Well, it's essentially teaching us that deaf people can't appreciate the symphony. If you are there in front of a symphony and you're 100% deaf, you are missing out on what's actually happening in the room, aren't you? Well, look at verse 14 again. A natural man cannot understand. And notice it says does not understand. It says cannot understand. A natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually appraised. There's a change that has to happen. All of us born into this world, born into this natural state that we've inherited from our great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam, there is something wrong with our nature that needs to be changed before we can understand that which is spiritual. 
This is a, a fundamental teaching that we have to grasp if we're going to understand the nature of man. We must be given ears to ear, right? You can't hear unless you have ears to hear. And we have to be given those ears. We're not born with them. We have to be given those ears. Now, I think there's the most powerful demonstration of this in Luke 24. So turn back with me. I referenced it earlier, but turn to Luke 24, and we'll camp out here for quite a while. Luke 24, starting at verse 13. This is Jesus' interaction with the two men on the road to Emmaus after Jesus' resurrection. In Luke's account, this is the first time we see the risen Christ, and He appears with two men on the road. Let's start in verse 13 and read to verse 16. Luke 24, 13. It says, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Here's the problem, verse 16. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing Jesus. They weren't preventing their own eyes. There was some sort of external force at play that was preventing them from seeing Jesus. They had an inability. They could not see Jesus. That's fascinating, isn't it? Let's drop down to verse 25. Jesus, of course, has a a back and forth with them. And they said, how do you not know what's been going on here? And they give him a brief rundown of what's happened about his own crucifixion and what he had said about the resurrection. Well, then Jesus says to them in verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, and this is the verse we looked at earlier, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Now, we have not heard yet in this story that they were able to see. As far as we know, still prevented from recognizing him. But what is Jesus doing? He's preparing them because he's not done with these two. He's not done with them yet. He's preparing them for something else. He actually goes with them and ends up staying with them and they end up eating together. Drop down to verse 30. When he, Jesus, had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Here it is, verse 31. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Wow, what an amazing time, right? I bet those guys wrote a lot of things about that experience, didn't they? Well, just like with in the Old Testament, you remember that case with Elisha's servant? And God was, they were praying to God, and God opened his eyes. Lord, opened his eyes that he may see, and he could see the spiritual forces at play. Well, something similar happened here. Their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. Amazing experience. And now let's drop all the way down to verse 44. Now Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And this is very important. We looked at verse 44 earlier. I'll read that. And then 45 is is critical here. Now he said to them, Jesus said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you 
that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And here it is, verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It was a need that they had. Their minds previously weren't opened. It was an act that God had to do. Jesus, the Son of God, resurrected, appearing to them. This is an amazing encounter you can read all about. But one of the activities that Jesus brought into the room was opening their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. You see how this fits with 1 Corinthians 2? The natural man cannot understand that which is spiritual. A change has to occur. God has to act on us for us to recognize the Word of God as the Word of God. So if you are here this morning as someone who testifies to the Bible being Scripture, the Bible being the Word of God, that means God has done something in you. God has worked in you. God has brought about this recognition, this testimony, that this is the Word of God. It's an activity of God. It's not rooted in our subjective thoughts or feelings. It's an activity of God. And what's fascinating about this is this happens without our awareness, doesn't it? When I was asking, asking you those questions at the start of the sermon, why do you hold to this table of contents? Who could articulate the depth of the answer that that deserves, right? It's a work of God that He has given His church a testimony of what He has said. If God is powerful enough to reveal, to inspire, and to preserve His Word, do you think He's powerful enough to accomplish His purposes with that which He has inspired? Absolutely. He absolutely is. And there are so many things in our lives that have happened without our awareness that was just God at work, and this is one of them. Add this one to the list if it wasn't on your list already. Michael Kruger, who has written two books on the canon of Scripture that are both helpful. He says this, the Holy Spirit not only is operative within the canonical books themselves, but also must be operative within those who receive them. He says the testimonium, and that's just a a goofy way of saying our belief in scripture, is not a private revelation of the Spirit. That's important to hold on to. Or new information given to the believer. That's also important to hold on to as if the list of the canonical books were whispered in our ears. If you had that experience, please stick around and talk to me after the service. Um, But the testimonium is not a private revelation of the Spirit. It's not new information given to the believer, but it is a work of the Spirit that overcomes the noetic effects of sin, the effect of sin on the mind, and it produces the belief that the Scriptures are the Word of God. And he goes on to say, We need not be consciously aware of the work of the Spirit for the Spirit to be, in fact, working. And isn't that so true? So many things in your life you can look back and say God was at work, and at the time you had no idea. This is one of those things. God bringing about a testimony that this is the Word of God. And now we arrive at a great conclusion. If we are saying Scripture's authority is not rooted in our subjective thoughts or feelings, if the authority of Scripture, the canon of Scripture, is not rooted in us at all, then we say that by the Holy Spirit's power, the canon of Scripture, what God has revealed, is self-authenticating. That's an important term for you to latch on to. If you're taking notes, write that down. The canon of Scripture, the revelation of God, is self-authenticating. 
It is attested in us by the Spirit's work. We are not given a revelation about the Bible. But by the Holy Spirit, we recognize the Bible as revelation itself. We are not given a revelation about the Bible. But by the Spirit's power, we recognize the Bible as revelation. That's what God is doing in His church. That's how God is bringing about recognition of His Word through the illumination of the Spirit. And now I want to give you a a tour of history here. Uh, Maybe I should have said this at the beginning. I warned the nursery ladies uh, today. It was one of those Sundays. So let me give you a brief overview of history because the process of recognizing the canon of Scripture began all the way back in the first century, even within the New Testament itself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this is just an amazing thing to behold if you consider what, what God was up to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, Paul writes to these believers and says this, The Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now, at, at first glance, as I just show you that verse, it's like, well, what's to see about that? That's interesting. I don't know the context. You know, what's the big deal? Well, for our purposes today, Paul is quoting the Lord Jesus Christ. This comes from the gospel accounts. You can see this in the gospel of Luke. How did Paul know what the Lord taught on this specific issue? Because scripture was beginning to be recorded, written down, preserved. You see it also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul's instructing them about communion, the Lord's Supper. He's directing them what Jesus had said. And in fact, I've got a red letter Bible, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that section where Paul is quoting Jesus, that's in red letters. He's quoting something that was preserved in the Gospels. It was already starting to happen, even in New Testament times. And in 2 Peter, this is probably the most famous one, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, the Apostle Peter wrote, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul. Okay, Peter is talking about Paul. Did you know that this happened in the New Testament? This is a pretty interesting place. In fact, Paul talks about Peter too, but not in such positive light. (laughs) Uh, Here, Peter is talking about Paul, and he says, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You see what's going on here? Peter recognized the authority of Paul, which is pretty important because Paul was added much later than Peter to the band of apostles, wasn't he? And he knew that Paul was writing. He mentions letters, plural, There were various letters that Peter was aware of. And he says, these letters are Scripture. He says, there are people out there who twist these letters from Paul and they do the same thing with the rest of the Scriptures. He's equating Paul's letters to the rest of the Scriptures. Peter was recognizing Paul's writings as Scripture. And he had an understanding that there was a corpus of writings. There was some sort of New Testament that was being developed. Peter recognized that in the life of Paul. And as we go through church history, it's very interesting as you look and see how they, over the course of time, different people were recognizing what God had revealed. They weren't determining what God had revealed. It's very important you get the language right. They weren't saying, oh, I determined that this is in or this is out of the canon. That's not how it worked. They were recognizing what was canon. And it's a very interesting overview as you consider the different figures that have preserved writings who reference Scripture. 
As you think about church history's role in this, uh, an illustration that Michael Kruger uses is that church history, or the people throughout church history, are more like thermometers than thermostats when it comes to the canon. Thermometers reflect what is there. Thermostats determine what is to be there. Well, as members of God's church, we're not determining at all what God has revealed, are we? No, that's not our role. We're recognizing what God has revealed. Well, I want to give you a very brief overview of ten figures from church history. Clement of Rome is first. Clement wrote his preserved letter that we have, First Clement, about 95 A.D., okay? 95, way back there. We talked about him last week just a tad, but it is quite astounding that we have this letter from before the year 100 from a non-apostle. Well, in his letter, First Clement, he affirms Paul's authority. He references the books of Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, and Hebrews. And in that letter, he denies his authority. He says, I'm not an apostle, but the apostles have the authority. And he quotes them. All of that before the year 100. I find that to be amazing. That's an amazing evidence that God has given us that we don't deserve. A second figure is the the Didache. This was an early church manual. So this isn't someone's name. It was an early church manual, the Didache. And it was from about the year 100. It taught from the Gospel of Matthew. Talked about communion, talked about baptism and other things, and it taught from the Gospel of Matthew. So the Gospel of Matthew had made some rounds by the year 100. Ignatius, this man died in the year 110. Okay, so he, he died at that time. He was writing before 110. And he wrote some letters that have survived, and he makes extensive references to Paul's letters to Matthew, Luke, and John, three of the four Gospels. Polycarp, he wrote to the church in Philippi in about the year 110. Polycarp quotes directly from Ephesians. He references Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're starting to get a lot of circulation of these texts, aren't we? Recognizing them as Scripture, using them as Scripture. What's interesting, too, about Polycarp is that he had a direct connection. He had a relationship with the Apostle John before John died. A fifth figure... Papias, he wrote in the year 125, he also knew John personally, and he actually has a quote from the Apostle John in his writings. So take it with however much salt you want to give it, okay? But in 125, he wrote that the Apostle John used to say, quote, Mark, the writer of the gospel, became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all he remembered. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. As early as 125. And in his writings, he referenced all four Gospels. He referenced 1 Peter, 1 John, and the book of Revelation. Sixth, Justin Martyr. He was writing about 150, the year 150. He cited all four Gospels, and he actually called for public reading of the four Gospels in Sunday worship, seeing seeing them as important just to be read aloud to congregations that assembled on Sundays. He referenced Paul's letters. He referenced the book of Acts, 1 Peter, Hebrews, and Revelation. Seventh, Irenaeus, he was writing about the 170s A.D., and we have a lot of letters from Irenaeus. He was a disciple of Polycarp that I mentioned earlier. He references all four Gospels, the book of Acts, every letter of Paul besides Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 1 and 2 John, and Revelation. And he cited over 1,000 New Testament passages in the year 170. God's working organically through his church, isn't he? And about the year 180, this is the eighth thing, it's an artifact called the Muratorian Fragment. 
and it's dated to the year 180. It affirms the scriptural status of all four Gospels, the book of Acts, all of Paul's letters, 1st and 2nd John, Jude, and Revelation. Hebrews, James, and 1st and 2nd Peter are not mentioned, and it doesn't say why. It's just a fragment after all. They could have been left off, could have been ripped off, could have deteriorated. But it specifically, this is what I mentioned earlier, that fragment specifically rejected the book, The Shepherd of Hermas. And it said, as a quote, it was written recently, even in our own times. We see that that was one of the standards for the church. It had to be from the apostles. Ninth, we're going to jump forward in history a little bit to Eusebius. Eusebius wrote the first church history book that we have around 325. Now we're getting to Constantine's time. And he created categories of books. First were the books that were canonical and certain. We felt really good about these and they were considered canonical. All four Gospels, the book of Acts, all of Paul's letters, including Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, 1 John and 1 Peter. Then he had then had a second category of these books are canonical, but we're not as sure of them as we wish we were. That included Revelation, James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John. That takes care of all the New Testament books, by the way, all called canon. And then there were these two other categories, both outside of canon. There were those works that were outside of canon and heretical, and then books that were outside of canon, but interesting or helpful, not heretical. And those were his four categories. And then tenth and finally was Athanasius. His famous 39th Festal Letter was written in 367, and he lists the 27 books that we have today as canon of the New Testament. And he goes on to list seven additional works that are not canonical, but they are helpful. Isn't that amazing? And it was at this time, around the late 300s, the late 4th century, that you have councils then that are actually starting to talk about canon. It wasn't in the 1st century. Was it in the 2nd century? It wasn't until the late 4th century that people start getting together to discuss what is canonical. Now, if you have watched anything from History Channel, Discovery Channel, those crazy things, you would think that very early on after Jesus died and rose again, that they all got together and it was a dark room and they slid forward, Gospel of Matthew, vote. And they all voted. Okay. Gospel of Mark. Oh. Gospel of Peter, because that does exist, by the way. Gospel of Peter and Gospel of Thomas and these other ones. And they all voted. That did not happen. That did not happen. There is not one time in history that that happened. So don't let anybody ever tell you that, okay? Uh, our, our secular TV channels have done a bad job teaching biblical history, if you can believe that. So uh, we want to reject any such notion. But what we see over the course of church history is that God, of course, is working organically. It's not as clean cut as perhaps you would want, but he's working organically in his church to bring about recognition of what is Scripture. And there was a core recognition of New Testament letters that emerged very early on, and then it became a task of determining where the boundaries were. I shouldn't have said determine. See how easy it is to say the wrong thing? Where they were recognizing the edges of the boundaries of what God had revealed. Certain books in the Old Testament and in the New Testament were identified clearly very early, while others they had to wrestle with. By the time lists were made, Widespread recognition already existed. This is a quote from Bart Ehrman, perhaps the only time we will ever quote from Bart Ehrman from this pulpit. He's an atheist who's very antagonistic toward the Bible, but he's one of the most famous and most uh, studied biblical scholars that there is. 
He graduated from Princeton in the mid-80s. He's, a, he's got an amazing mind. He knows a lot about Bible history. But even this antagonistic atheist says this, the canon of the New Testament was ratified by widespread consensus rather than by official proclamation. There was not some group that was appointed to determine once for all what's in the Bible. It was a, there was a widespread consensus before anything even remotely that looked like that happened. So down through the ages, God has caused His people to hear His voice through an organic process, the work of the Spirit over the course of time. And His Word was functional as soon as it was revealed. God didn't reveal a bunch of letters, a bunch of books, and then He was just waiting around for men to to get it together to make them functional in the church. No. As soon as they were written, they were functional in the church because that was God's purpose for those letters. Well, I want to finish by answering two questions. The first is, what do we do about disagreements? What do we do about disagreements over the canon of Scripture? I mentioned at the beginning, Martin Luther wasn't quite on the same page as us when it came to certain books of the Bible. He called James an epistle of straw, and he put James at the back of his Bible. He didn't like the way that James spoke of certain things. He didn't like the book of Revelation. Now, there's some evidence that maybe toward the end of his life he came around on some things, but I don't. Luther was a pretty hard-headed guy, so I, I don't know if I'd be comfortable saying that. But what's clear is that God has not given the church absolute unity on this because he didn't drop a golden table of contents down. There are guys like Martin Luther that God has allowed to take some interesting views on this. Well, let's start by considering the Apocrypha. I'm sure you've heard of the Apocrypha, but maybe you would struggle to <laughs> tell somebody what it is. Uh, the Apocrypha is what the Roman Catholic Church added in that Council of Trent 476 years ago. It is what they added as canonical. They got their council together and they said this set of books, I think there are seven books, this should be added to the Old Testament. These weren't books that were hidden, even though the word Apocrypha means hidden. They weren't previously hidden. But these were books that the church had had, that the Jews had had before the time of Christ, that are very helpful in a lot of ways, but they never were considered Scripture. The Jews never considered them to be Scripture, but the Roman Catholic Church now does, and they have for the last 476 years. Here are just some basic facts about the Apocrypha to help you make a uh, maybe a helpful decision about how you feel about what the Catholic Church has done here. Well, first of all, it contains errors and contradictions. It does contain errors and contradictions. In fact, the book of Judith that's in the Apocrypha, it has been so explained away by the Roman Catholic Church, they have to say, well, it all just must be metaphorical because there's a lot of errors in there, just historical errors. And Scripture doesn't have that. Inspired Scripture doesn't have that. The Jews didn't accept the Apocrypha as canon. There is no evidence whatsoever that the Jews ever said that the Apocrypha was in the Old Testament canon. In fact, as you read the New Testament, do you know how many times the Apocrypha is cited or quoted? Zero. Zero times. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, he actually gives a list of the Jewish books. Doesn't include the Apocrypha. In the book of 1 Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha, the book of 1 Maccabees itself says the times of the prophets have ceased. The author of 1 Maccabees wasn't even claiming to be a prophet. So as you start looking at the basic facts and you put it together, you say, well, that's a pretty uphill battle to say these lost books of the Bible need to be added in. And there's no ground whatsoever. In fact, I think the strongest argument 
comes from the Bible itself. In Luke chapter 11, you can just write this down as a reference. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is talking about how the blood of the prophets is on the guilty hands of the Jews of his generation. And when he talks about the blood of the prophets, he says from Abel to Zechariah. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And the Zechariah that he's referencing there is most certainly the one in Second Chronicles toward the end of the recorded Jewish history as they were coming out of Babylonian exile. So Jesus gives us a timeline. Abel, very first one to die, to Zechariah. And the Apocrypha was written in that period after Zechariah. That's a pretty important reference if you ever get into a conversation with a Roman Catholic and you don't mind if they like you or not. You can go down that road with them. Then as you get into the New Testament, there are all kinds of pseudepigraphal gospels. And for many of those, if you, someone ever talks to you about the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Peter, all these things, the gospel of Barnabas, gospel of Mary, the apocalypse of Peter, the acts of Paul, there are a whole bunch of them. All you need to really do is just take a few minutes and read them. And you'll understand that that's the voice of a different shepherd. In fact, I can't remember if it's gospel of Thomas or gospel of Peter, but you actually have an account when it talks about the resurrection of Jesus of the cross coming out of the tomb with Jesus and it's humongous and it talks. Exactly. Exactly. A lot of them you just need to read. <laughs> but of course we have uh, other reasons for rejecting such wild tales. But what about those who want to cut back? Many of you, I'm sure, struggled to get into the book of Revelation in your Christian life. And perhaps some of you have even wondered, is this the Word of God? This is different. This is strange than anything else. Um, of course, for Luther, it was a few books. And because of Luther's views on this, by the way, many in the Lutheran church hold to a doctrine called antilegomena. It's an, it's an interesting word, antilegomena. But what it basically means is there are books that we can draw doctrine from, and there are other books of the Bible that are just a little strange to us, and you can't draw doctrine out of those books. Uh, they, they say the book of Hebrews. We don't know who the author is, and so we can't draw doctrine out of the book of Hebrews. It can support other doctrine, but you can't found a doctrine on the book of Hebrews. And Luther himself, he had this test of, does the book exalt Christ? And by his estimation, the book of James did nothing to exalt Christ. And so he put it into a different category, which is quite strange. Well, what do you do with people who want to cut back, not add to, but cut back from the canon of Scripture? Well, there are ways to harmonize Scripture. Here in this church, we've preached the book of James. We've done studies through the book of Revelation, some of these more commonly referenced books that are, people just aren't sure about. There are ways to harmonize the Scripture. But ultimately, what it comes down to is we need to pursue the voice of our shepherd. Because there's a great promise that we have from Jesus, and this is the last scripture I'll reference today. John 10, 27. It's a very simple verse. But listen to what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We need to pursue, through God's written and preserved revelation, the voice of our shepherd. And trust God in faith as we approach the text of Scripture that's been preserved for us. Trust God in faith that He will assure us that His Word is His Word. He has great intentions for His Word, doesn't He? And He will accomplish His purposes. Two quotes I want to leave you with. One is from John Frame. 
John Frame says, God will not let his people walk in darkness. He will provide for us the words we need to have within our reach. Our assurance is supernatural. When God speaks, he at the same time assures us that he is speaking. It's a good quote. That he provides for us the words we need to have and they're within our reach. They're within our reach. And you need not be afraid of the Bible's veracity because the word of God can take care of itself. And if you get so caught up and we need to, we need to protect it, we need to hold it up, we need to figure it out down to the very last T and we're responsible for all that for it to be powerful, you're wrong. So the last quote I want to share with you is from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Brethren, the word of God or the word of the Lord can stand alone without the propping which many are giving it. The word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it. See you that lion? They have caged him for his preservation. Shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and spears, these mighty men. They're intent on defending a lion. Oh, fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. The word of God, if we unleash it, you think it's going to prove itself that by God's power, the divine book will prove itself to be self-authenticating and will root itself in the heart, hearts and minds of his church? Yeah, the word of God just needs to be unleashed. Let's make that our goal. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the testimony that we have preserved for us in the Word of God and the amazing accounts throughout church history. We thank you that you have invited us to participate in your church as you're building your church. God, give us great confidence in Scripture. Give us a great passion for the Word of God and help us to see ways that we need to unleash the lion where we need to just let Scripture do its work because of your power in it and through it. God, we love you. We thank you that you have not let us live on without a word from you, but you have given us your revelation. In Jesus' name, amen.